Good afternoon. Welcome to COVID Lawcast. Today we have Jeff Childers, who has really made his mark with a blog called Coffee and COVID. Have I got that right, Jeff? That's it. Coffee. You have to have your coffee first, and then you can get to your COVID news. Yeah, early on, I caught on to that, and I've just seen his blog grow and grow and grow, and he gives daily updates to us all about what's happening in the COVID world that we're now living in. So, Jeff, for the listeners, would you describe your background, and, and then I'd like you to go into some of the litigation you've done in Florida. Sure. So up until March of 2020, I ran a very comfortable, small boutique commercial litigation practice. My exposure to constitutional law was in law school, taking a semester, a required credit in con law my first year. That's it. And in March 2020, in my county here in Alachua, Florida, they passed, I think it was the first mandatory mask ordinance in the state. That activated me. I'll never forget that moment when I watched the first county commission meeting I think I've ever watched in my life. I couldn't have named a single commissioner before then. And that's how much attention I ever paid to local politics. And uh, they passed that. And I just, I looked at my wife who was watching it with me and I was like, "That there's no way that's constitutional. They can't tell us how to dress. They can't tell us what to put on our face. I mean, it's just baffling. And I'm not a con law expert. So within 30 days, I had filed the first lawsuit in Florida against a mask mandate. The short version of that story is our emergency petition for a preliminary injunction was denied, as I expected. I do quite a bit of appellate practice in my commercial litigation. And I, I was prepared for the appeal, and we went up on appeal. And just about a year later, we got a favorable ruling from the first district court of appeals in Florida, who found that mandatory masking is presumptively unconstitutional. And to my knowledge, that is the only anti-mask appellate decision in the entire country to this day. The county who was supported by every left-wing activist group you can imagine decided not to appeal us to the Florida Supreme Court, which I think shows you how strong that decision was. It would have been completely natural for them to, to have taken that up on appeal. Our Florida Supreme Court has been described as the most conservative Supreme Court in all 50 states. I don't know if that's true, but it's a pretty conservative court. The first DCA is, is probably the most conservative appellate district. So I was blessed to, to have that to work with. After that, I filed the first motion for an injunction against the vaccines in May of 21 here in Alachua County. They passed a vaccinate or terminate policy against their city employees. I had 270 plaintiffs in that case. The city employs about 2,200 people. So I had more than 10, almost 15% of the entire city workforce in my lawsuit as a named plaintiff. I put them all in the case caption. So the case caption went for like six or seven pages with all the all the names. I got to pick which one I wanted first so that, you know, we could name the case. It was Friend versus City of Gainesville. <laughs> and on the strength of the first DCA opinion I got on the masks just a couple months before, this time the trial court 
granted our motion for a preliminary injunction. So to my knowledge, I've got the first broad injunction against any vaccine mandate anywhere in the country. Wow. I, why did Gainesville go so early? That was prior to the federal mandate. I mean, why did they jump on board that early? So we live in a one-party county here. The current city commission in Gainesville and the county commission at that time anyway, things have changed, but they had a brand new crop of Soros-backed candidates. So they were even left of the legacy left-wing government that we have here. We don't have any Republicans in local government in, in Alachua. And so they looked to LA County as their model. And so when California started talking about all these mandates, the uh, Alachua County team jumped right on it. So I tell people sometimes that the reason that I was out in front of a lot of this stuff is not because I'm some kind of special genius or pioneer or anything. It's because I was in the pressure cooker. I mean, this was ground zero for their laboratory for experimenting with mandates. The city's mandate from the day they passed the ordinance, they gave the city employees 31 days to be fully vaccinated or they would be terminated. So that's just enough time to get your two shots in. Yeah, let me ask this question. What about the unions, though? I mean, unions here in Akron have been very resistant. In fact, Akron, which is a Democrat-run town completely, did not go for any mandates for its employees. It was primarily because of the police union. The head of the union is very strong and fought this from day one. He even fought the shutdowns and the limitations of gatherings, that type of thing. He actually said to the mayor when the council passed a 30-day limitation on gathering over Thanksgiving, Clay Cozart's his name. He said, well, good luck enforcing it because we're not, <laughs> you know, but I, I guess what I'm wondering in a, in a democratic town, usually you have strong unions. Were the unions just going along with this? So here's how it broke down. The local unions opposed mandates. The national unions supported the mandates. Mm -hmm. So the locals couldn't get any help from national and National ordered them not to officially oppose the mandates. So we had tons of local union support. They did, they helped with fundraising to cover some of our fees, but none of them could wear their union shirts at any of our press events. They could be individual plaintiffs in the lawsuit, but the, the local union was not permitted to be a plaintiff. We have seen that. I don't think everybody understands the way unions are structured, but they have an international body then they have their state level bodies and then they have their locals. That's what we refer to most of the time as local and then some kind of number. That's really interesting. Did they try to pressure the internationals to change and did the internationals ever change? So the first contact that I had was from the local union and they put me in touch. I mean, they facilitated this contact with the national legal team for the union in Atlanta. And so I spoke to one of the union's top in-house attorneys in Atlanta, and it was as cold a conversation as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And the guy never like said anything that would directly support mandates, but he kept saying, well, well, we've evaluated it and we don't think that there's any legal basis to oppose the mandates. And I said, there's a lot of legal basis. I said, let me tell you my theory. And, you know, we have some really good law in Florida that I won on. Right. And he just, he couldn't care less. And I mean, he, 
he tolerated the conversation for 15 minutes. And then, you know, we, we concluded the call with nothing decided and I never heard from them again. And like I said, the, the local guys heard later that they weren't allowed to participate in any formal sense. You know, what we have seen is this high level organization. It seems like the big law firms, the big companies, I mean, they all seemed ready to go with this. It's almost as if there was a preparation. And most of the time we found there's money behind it. There's a lot of money to the universities, a lot of money to the school districts, a lot of money to the corporations. We actually found an agreement if they got 90% vaxxed, that they would get money issued under a federal contract. So we have that. They withdrew that item from the contract once we discovered it, which is interesting because they knew that was a step too far. But I, I guess I'm wondering at the union level, is there any money that you were able to see in the background on that? Any reason the unions would go along with this kind of, because we have seen the internationals be more resistant as well. And I just really wondered why, if you had any inkling on that. Yeah, I mean, I, that that's not something that I've been pursuing, but I will say this, and I'll say this to everybody who's listening to this podcast. What happened in 2020 and 2021 is that the federal government used our money under the aegis of emergency appropriations to bribe every corporation and institution in this country to go along. And then after they bribed everybody that would be bribed, they used the stick to get the rest of them to to get into line. When I sued Ascension Hospital, one of the things that we learned is that Medicare and Medicaid constitute 70% of their multi-billion dollar annual revenues. And that is not unusual for large corporate hospital groups. They are 100% dependent on federal money. And there are these, these things called conditions of participation or COPS. And Medicare, it's like a rule. Medicare issues these rules, these conditions of participation. So in order to participate in Medicare, you have to comply with whatever rule they come up with. Now, this is not a democratically elected body. These are you know, deep state actors and appointed bureaucrats, no transparency, no accountability. They can't be voted out. Um, they can't be sued. They pass these, these rules and then if you don't go along with it, you don't get your money. And so some of them, this stuff can be fought, right? So there were some successful cases in the Fifth Circuit, for example, got some really good rulings finding that Medicare had exceeded its authority. Now, the Supreme Court ultimately threw that out, right? And they supported Medicare. They, they said they could do it, right? So these, these conditions of participation are now constitutional. So these agencies can now just issue these regulations. And this is what happens. It doesn't matter if you can get it overturned. How long can one of these hospital groups go without that money? Can they go five years or 10 years while they're litigating with the federal government? They're literally over a barrel. Yep, yep. And listen, that, that affects, they, they did it. They got away with this. Imagine what they're going to do next in terms of mandates for, for hospital workers. And we, we have sued a hospital here, Akron Children's Hospital, and mainly we're going after the religious exemptions and the failure to accommodate the religious exemptions. And that seems, unfortunately, to be one of the 
best possible pathways. So uh, we have a number of people though, who just walked away and said, look, you don't, you can't force me to do this, but you know, then they get fired. Christopher Rake out in LA was walked off UCLA Medical Center. Uh, he didn't want to use a religious exemption, even though he's very religious. He's like, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist. I know how bad this stuff is. I'm not taking it. Yet they walked him out anyway. And I think he also had recovered from COVID. So he felt like he had natural immunity. You know, I did look back at the early Medicare statute, by the way. And it does say that there should be no interference between the doctor-patient relationship. And I thought, well, mandating injections is certainly an interference with the doctor-patient relationship. And the AMA, AMA back then fought hard for that because they didn't want government telling doctors how to practice medicine. Yeah, that, that's important, but they found a way around that. And I'll describe that to you in a, in okay. a moment. But, but the mandate, remember, the mandate was not a mandate for patients. It was a mandate for the healthcare workers, right? right? The doctors and the nurses. So they weren't covered by that. That was a loophole that was exploited in order to force these hospital workers to take the jabs by basically threatening to withhold. Listen, Think about how crazy this is. Medicare is a publicly funded insurance company, right? right? They reimburse the hospitals for expenses in treating patients. What business do they have telling the hospitals how getting into that employer-employee relationship? What other insurance company does that? What expert, special expertise does Medicare that runs an insurance company have in public health. Their job is not to figure out what the best treatment is. Their job is to pay claims and deny claims. That's what their job is. How did they suddenly get to be the, the fountain of, of expertise on the best way to run a hospital and protect patients? It's madness. Now, I wish you would have been arguing that Supreme Court case. I, you know, unfortunately, I, I felt like some of those these arguments got missed in the argument. I listened to it very closely. And then the other thing, of course, that we all know now is that the justices themselves really aren't aware of current data in any way. We saw the misuse of data and misstatements of data at that argument. But go on. You had something else to say. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a, a huge one, and it goes to your point about interfering with the doctor-patient relationship and that, that alleged protection that we have in the Medicare statute, which is meaningless now because what they've done is they have crafted treatment protocols that are acceptable and reimbursable and then described others that are not reimbursable so that the hospital administrators have no choice but to require their hospitalists, which is what you call a doctor that works for a corporate hospital, the hospitalists have to adhere to the hospital's treatment protocol, right? And so the way I, I, I figured all this stuff out was when I was suing hospitals, all of them were saying the same thing. They were saying, we have a COVID committee we're like, look, judge, th this is all, it's a rubber stamp. They're treating them exactly the same. They put them on remdesivir and then the ventilator. And that's it. Every patient judge, they're all uniform. Every single patient gets exactly the same treatment. And, and yet judge, what are the likelihood? What's the odds that every doctor would prescribe exactly the same treatment? 
for every single patient that comes in, regardless of where they are in their COVID journey or how serious their case is or whatever. No, boom, they get remdesivir in the vent. That's state action. That was my argument at the time. This isn't the hospitals. It's the federal government telling them they're acting as agents for the federal government. That's the federal government's treatment protocol, Judge. That's what I was saying. Because, and, and you know, you want to say people are like, oh, you know, the hospitals are evil and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they may be evil. I'm not saying they're not, but they're not evil for this reason, because they have to stay in business. Right. And so when Medicare says we're not reimbursed, we're going to pay, not only will we, we reimburse remdesivir and ventilation, but we'll, we're going to give you an override for it. We're going to give you more money because it's an emergency and because you're following the, the gold standard, the CDC protocol. And you know what? If you do this ivermectin stuff, we're not paying for that. And so what is the hospital administrator whose job is to protect the hospital, right, and, and their profits, and the hospital's lawyers who are, who, by the way, they get liability protection if they prescribe remdesivir and, you know, the, but then they could be exposed to liability if they use this, this drug that the FDA is criticizing all the time and calling a horse dewormer. What's the, the attorneys for the hospital? What are they going to tell the, the doctors to do? Yeah. They're going to tell them to, to follow the protocol, even right? Though, if you don't want even to- though the protocol is killing many, many people, you know, as soon as you're on the vent, what's your expectancy to live? It goes down to about 50%. And the remdesivir we, we, injures your organs after that. We have many situations like that here in Ohio. We, we called it the death protocol in our office. And, and we had hundreds of people calling for help at one time. And, and so that was like, I mean, it was so common. We would say, are they on the death protocol? Are they on the death protocol? Yes. And they're, they're all on the death protocol, right? And not only that, we could get into this whole area too, because I did litigation for patients who were essentially kidnapped. We called it medical kidnapping cases. That's how we referred to them in the hospital because the hospitals would not discharge the patients. And they were giving them these treatments against the patient's written directives. So, you know, the patient would put it in writing, I do not want the ventilator, I do not want remdesivir. And the, the relatives would come back and the patient would be on the ventilator. And they would say, he wrote, he gave you written instructions not to put them on the ventilator and the hospitals would say in the middle of the night, he told us he changed his mind. I mean, don't you think at the very least that's battery, even if we don't go, go down malpractice, medical malpractice, aren't, aren't we at battery? We also have informed consent issues. I mean, what do you think of the, of the ways to challenge what's happened to people because they've killed people over these practices? My, my personal thought, and I have spent a lot of time on these cases, and I've been on a lot of conference calls with other lawyers around the country brainstorming about it, and I, I personally believe that the only avenue is through intentional torts, mm -hmm. right? So battery, homicide, wrongful death, well, maybe not even wrongful death. If it's negligence-based, you're not going to get there. And the problem with all of those is you have to prove intent. Right. And what's your evidence, right? And especially if they're going to say they always have the cover that the federal government provided them by publishing these so-called gold standards. So they're going to say, look, this, the standard of care was remdesivir and ventilation. Here it is. The CDC sent us this whole book on it. We, Judge, we followed the standard of care. Yeah. Do you know anyone who has brought that case or do we have some of those cases bubbling up? Because I mean, we're looking at a couple of situations here like that. So I'm wondering whether you know of any. 
yes, I do know a couple of attorneys who are crazy enough to be filing those lawsuits. And uh, uh, there's one, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I could get it to you if you want to brainstorm with the guy. And he's, he's filed more of these cases than anybody. Yeah, he's, he's a pioneer up in New Jersey, I think. He hasn't won any, but he's, he's hell bent on it. I mean, he's not giving up. He's mad and he's not going to take it. So if he or you or some attorney somewhere can find the, the angle, right, we'll crack this thing open all over the country. We have a number of situations. I do have one that was reviewed by the chief ethics officer of the hospital who opined that the treatment was absolutely what killed the patient. And it was the remdesivir, which was unnecessary. This is from the hospital's own ethics chief. So there's a hospital that has a severe conflict that took place among the doctors. And we have some communication. So uh, it'd be nice to maybe have a team of attorneys instead of just going it alone. I'm a small practice like you. That's, that's some great evidence, you know, Warner. with evidence like that, you ought to be able to survive dismissal. And if you can survive dismissal, you get to discovery and the hospital is going to hate it. That's what I've been telling people. We just got to get to discovery. We've talked about three of your cases. What other cases have you been doing? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's been a whirlwind in the last two years. When I started in March of 2020, like I said, I had this great lifestyle firm. I worked about 30 hours a week made terrific money for Gainesville, went to my beach place every weekend. You know, I, I, I never worked past noon on a Friday. You know, now I work all the time, all day, <laughs> all night, all weekend. It never stops. Right now, we just filed a couple of election-related cases. So we're suing the Hillsborough County Supervisor of Elections who got a bunch of Zuckerbucks and can't account for the money. Or won't. So we got that one that we just filed where we just filed uh, over the weekend, a lawsuit challenging the qualifications of a Republican candidate for Congress who just moved down here from New York and registered as a Republican for the first time. We're challenging his qualifications on behalf of, of another candidate. So elections law was another thing that I never in a million years thought I would get involved in. And here I am. I'm on a call tonight uh, with a whole bunch of doctors that you would recognize instantly from the pro-early treatment camp who are getting sued or reviewed under their medical licensure, and we're, we're trying to put together a cohesive nationwide response to that. I'm representing one of them right now in a board case. It's not in, it's not in litigation, but you know we're in the trading mean letters stage. It really is coming. I mean, a lot of licenses are being challenged. If you're in this response to the COVID mandates movement, you know, your license is on the line. I had a nurse stop by this afternoon who's getting, she got contacted by Board of Nursing because they said, we have Amish in Ohio. And they said that, you know, we understand you've been talking to the Amish about how to deal with this. And you gave a talk about masks and how ineffective they are. So now she's under attack. There's even a, a young man with financial credentials to do financial advice to people. His is under attack because he's been very active in the health freedom movement as well. All of a sudden, the SEC is investigating him. So they're definitely targeting licensing of anyone who is stepping out of line and has a contrary point. 
I have wondered whether any attorneys have come under attack. Have you heard of that at all on the license? Well, or have you felt that already? I tell this story a lot. I think I'm pretty safe because, you know, I'm in Florida. And so currently our state government is solid and the Florida bar, and we have the most conservative Supreme Court, which is where the Florida bar would have to try an attorney to, to get him disbarred, right, for something like that. So that's not going to happen. However, I've told this story a million times. This is 100% true. When I, back in March of 2020, when I, you know, heard that about the masks and decided to sue the county, and I had never sued local government before. I didn't know who to serve. I'm reading the statutes and trying to figure out, you know, where do you, I, I joke all the time. I'm like, you know, do you slide it in that slot at the library where you return the books? I mean, who, who do you serve to, to sue the county? So I, I, I'm a fast learner though, and I figured it all out, but I was calling, as I'm sure you do, all of my peers, telling them, you know, hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure out this, you know, anything about suing the county. And you know what every single one of them said to me? They said, Jeff, why are you throwing your career away over this mass thing? It's going to be resolved in a few weeks and you're going to lose your career over it, right? So that was the, that was the feedback I was getting from everybody I respected that I talked to at the time. We advised, represented, helped out somewhere in excess of 30,000 healthcare workers in Ohio during this time frame. The organization of the healthcare workers helped to cause the hospitals to, in the main, accept exemptions. So, you know, they all backed down, didn't want to face a lawsuit. Children's Hospital, though, here in my own town, decided that these children are so at risk from COVID, we got to make sure every nurse in here and every healthcare worker is, you know, vaccinated, even though all of them had been exposed to COVID the entire time. And most of them had obviously recovered successfully, had natural immunity. So didn't make any sense to me. But for the most part, when the healthcare workers organized, it really helped to back down the hospitals. You don't know about my history, but that's kind of why I came to it is because my background is suing local, state and federal government. So, I mean, I saw this and I'm like, oh my God, it's like a field day. There's way too much to do. We have hundreds of employment, unemployment, other types of smaller cases we're trying to help people out on. And then we have about 12 big cases, you know, against the universities and companies and the hospital here locally. So that's kind of the structure of our practice. We're working day and night, just like you, on all this. I was absolutely appalled that our governments did this and the way that this came about. I gave a talk very early on in 2020 to a group of lawyers, and I was shocked at the end of the talk, because this is just mainly about shutdowns, not the mandate, but 60-some percent of them were okay with the shutdowns and the distancing and I was shocked that at the end of our talk, we had one guy give the you know pro side, I gave the con side against the lockdowns and masking. You know, and I was shocked that 60% of us didn't see the constitutional issue that was, was going on here. When the mandate for the vaccine came out, I'm kind of making an assumption here. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I'm assuming you didn't take the shot. No, I'm a COVID survivor. Right. I never had any symptoms, but my entire family had it and we were quarantined together for a month. I, I don't wear masks and I don't uh, practice social distancing with my wife and kids. And I ate and drank and did everything else with them that I normally do. So I'm confident that I either had it or I have natural immunity and won't get it. Right. I, I happen to also do something called the Federal False Claims Act work. 
So when, when they're telling me Pfizer's coming up with something, I'm like, oh no, I, I don't trust anything that company does. I, they've got enough history here. So I already, I was well-versed in the history of Pfizer and these drug companies. I don't trust them anyway. And anything they're making, even standard medicines, you know, they had that case down in Puerto Rico where they weren't even using proper ingredients. They weren't measuring them properly. So you're buying a drug that you think has so many milligrams of something in it. it ain't true. It, it was all messed up. Their quality control, their good manufacturing practices. So I've never trusted them based on another segment of litigation that I've been doing. And, you know, that's partly why I was very happy to represent all these healthcare workers because what's better for my business, you know, my Medicare, Medicaid fraud business and knowing more healthcare workers, right? Instantly, I'm like, no. But what made you say no to the VAX? Because it really has been an overwhelming message of safe and effective, safe and effective, constantly being drilled into people's heads. And, and the risks have been completely minimized. So I'm sort of naturally skeptical as a litigating attorney who has to depose people and figure out what institutions are really up to, not what they're saying. You know, I always approach anyone's claims with a degree of, of sort of healthy skepticism, and I'd like to see the, the data, right? And I was involved in the mask litigation while the vaccines were under development in during warp speed. And I remember the day that it dawned on me that the arguments that they were using to push the masks, don't wear the mask for yourself, wear it for others. I knew that we were going to hear those arguments for the vaccines. And I knew that what they were doing with the masks was learning about mandates and how people were responding to them. And I believed, and I think I was correct, that they were practicing for the vaccine mandates and, and developing the infrastructure necessary to deploy those into private businesses and everything, because they were getting around the constitutional issues. That's why they were, they were doing it that way. And so I was already upset about vaccine mandates months before the first ones were available in December. So I think I just felt ornery. And by that time, because of all the research I had done supporting my mask litigation, I knew that I had virtually no chance of even having a serious case of COVID. And I don't take the flu shot. I used to take it. I took it several times in my 20s, but one time I had a bad reaction to it that was 10 times worse than the flu. And the other two times I wound up getting the flu anyways. And I went back to my doctor and I complained about it. You know what he said? Well, it's not perfect. I'm like, well, why am I taking it then? You know, it's it, the whole thing. It's like playing Russian roulette or something. You know, you could get a bad reaction or you could skip the flu this year. Well, you know what? The flu's not that bad. I'll take the flu. And that was how I approached COVID. I, I saw that people were, would get it. They would do fine. I'm not in a risk category. I'm not morbidly obese with multiple comorbidities or anything, right? And plus I got a hold of the... The first 400 medical examiner's notes on the first 400 COVID deaths in Florida, those were still subject to public records and they missed it. And as soon as we got a hold of those through public records, they changed the way they were reporting it so that they could all qualify under an exemption, but they weren't exempt. So I read all 400 and all four, they would, it would make your hair stand on it. And I mean, the stuff that was in there, a guy dies in a motorcycle accident and he's a COVID death because they tested his 
his dead body. They somehow tested him positive at the hospital. So they got the bonus. Another one was, a. And I'm not making any of this up, a roofer, an immigrant roofer on a two-story building. Listen to this. He gets struck by lightning. The lightning goes through the roof and makes a hole in the roof. He's thrown off the roof. He breaks his neck, his spine, his ribs. He fractures his skull. He never wakes up, dies at the hospital, and he's in the COVID death list. That's my lightning strike guy. And, and so I'm already, I'm seeing this stuff and I'm like, this is, there's nothing right about this. Just so, tell me the truth. We've seen the same thing in Ohio. I mean, there's so much drive to classify everybody and anybody as a COVID death or COVID related, both because the hospitals got reimbursed more if they were COVID related. And obviously they wanted to pump these numbers across the state, which is all about pumping the fear to get everybody into line. So it, it, apparently it worked. I'm always curious as to how we break through. You hear my background. I think that's kind of what left me to be skeptical and resistant to it. But family members and friends who got the shot and believed in this, and I think some of that's starting to break down, safe and effective. It's clearly not effective anymore. And I think people are starting to get an inkling that it's not safe as we all start to know people who are injured by the shots. But I mean, how do you think we can break through to people and break through this mass hypnosis I think some of us have been in? Have you seen any of this stuff from Matthias Desmet? Oh, of course. He's an expert. Right. Right. I mean, this, that's what he does. That's what he did even before the pandemic was research in that area. And what Matthias says is that you just have to keep talking. There is no rational way to convince them. And only there's only a portion of them that can be convinced. But if you keep talking you will penetrate that 30% or whatever. And we need enough to switch the majority, right? Because you're right. When we started, there were more than 50% of the people who were all for these mandates. And that was the problem, right? People want to say it was, you know, this was government. It, it did it to us. But government could not have done it without the consent of a majority of people in this country. And then you can say, yeah, well, they were, you know, it was psyops. They were propagandized and... That's probably true too. That one of the things that we need to fix is there are already laws that say the government can't use psyops against the American people, but clearly they found a loophole. Right. Right. That loophole needs to get plugged. It needs to be a crime to psychologically manipulate Americans, the American government doing it. And the American government can't outsource it to foreign governments or private entities because that should be a crime too which I think is one of the things they were up to in Ukraine, but that's a different conspiracy theory. And, a, and we can save that one for a conspiracy theory. Podcast. And I think everybody understands here, they, we had all these public service announcements about the quote unquote vaccine and safe and effective, but they're not required as a private company would have been to list all the potential side effects because that would have gone on for 30 pages of text or whatever it was. You know, so you get safe and effective over and over and it's coming at you all these different ways, but none of the side effects, none of the potential problems are, are being. You don't even, Warner, you don't have to get that far. As a lawyer, right, from day one, when they started that safe and effective baloney, I said, explain to me why they have universal liability protection if it's safe and effective. 
Perfect. Yeah, that's right. Why do they need it's, it? It's on its face. Obvious something's going wrong here. Exactly. They have broader liability protection than any pharmaceutical company in the history of the world. What do they need that for? Yeah. They knew. Yeah. It was going to be a disaster. That's why they got all that liability. You know, they won't sell it to countries that won't give them global liability protection. Right. India, I know that Pfizer's not in India. They wanted to do their own research and Pfizer just is like, we're out of here. Don't do any yep. independent research. Yeah, I happen to be working with Robert Barnes on the Brooke Jackson case. We're getting some interesting insights on our end. Well, I've taken up about an hour, 45 minutes or an hour of your time, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you would like to say or any message you would like to get out there? Yeah, I, I always want to, on these kinds of discussions, always hit the point of optimism. First of all, the media does not report any good news. We're winning all over the place, but you're not going to hear about it in the media. You, you can hear about some of it in coffee and COVID because that's what I go looking for. But the American people, even the ones who are still virtue signaling to their, because their peer groups re require it, because their job demands it, because their career would be ruined without it, even many of them are furious. There is a fury in this country that we've probably never seen before. And that fury is going to vent at some point. And the, and the good news for the people who have orchestrated all of this is that Americans are good people and we're not mobs. But that doesn't mean that we don't eventually get around to dealing with it. And these people are going to be dealt with. It's already falling apart for them. And I could make a whole case on that for you and show you all the different pieces. I mean, look, they're strong. They have all the resources. They've got all the money. They run the whole government, right? They can hold out for a long time. But it's falling apart. And we will get there. We're going to win this. And people like you and me, and I don't know, I'll just speak for myself. For me, I want, I'll apologize to every one of your listeners because I never voted in a local election in my life. I couldn't have named one school board member, <laughs> right? I'm part of the problem. I allowed this to happen. And the most powerful governmental unit in this country is the local government. And everybody who's listening to this, if you want to do something, get out there and get your local government back. Because local governments have something called police powers that doesn't refer to the cops. It's a generic term that talks about just you know virtually anything necessary to provide for the health, safety, and welfare of the community. The federal government doesn't have that. The state government has a very limited form of it, but your local government has almost universal police powers. If we can get back the counties, this will all be over. And we already have a lot of them. So fight where you are, bloom where you're planted. You can't do anything about George Soros. You can't do anything about the World Economic Forum. Forget about those people, fight your home ground. And if we all do that, all of us in each of our counties, then this will all be over. So that's the thing I would, I would want to end with. Well, that is a beautiful ending. That is a great message. I completely concur with that. On that note, thanks everybody for listening and please follow Coffee and COVID on, is it on Substack, Jeff? Is that where it is? Uh, we have our own URL, www.coffeeandcovid.com. We'll take you straight to it. You can sign up and get it right in your email inbox every day.
Well, let's get some people over there to sign up. Jeff has had a, he's wonderful about updating daily in terms of what's going on around the country. So thank you again.